David, what is going on, my friend? This is truly an honor. Well, thanks. Uh, well, just another Monday morning. <laughs> I get it. First time you ever saw someone reading one of your books. Where were you and what did you do? Well, it would have been my first book, which was the biography of Bill Clinton. Um, and I was on a train, actually, uh, going up to New York. And did you approach that person? No. <laughs> I, always, I, would, I, have, I would also see people reading my book once in a while on the subway in D.C. I've never approached anybody who was reading my book. My wife would and embarrass me. <laughs> but I never did. I have a ton of athletes on it, and I always ask them where they are when they got the call that they got drafted. Like, hey, you just got drafted by so-and-so. Sure. You're a Pulitzer Prize winner, of course. How did you get notified that you won the award? Was that a phone call also? Yeah, that's a great story, actually, Mike. So um, it was 1993. I was the Southwest Bureau Chief for the Post in Austin, Texas. My wife's parents were visiting us, and we went golfing. I basically blew the day off um, playing hooky from the post. And when I got back to the uh, to our house, there was a message from Don Graham, who was the publisher of the Washington Post. This was on Friday. The, the uh, Pulitzers aren't formally announced until the following Monday. But newspapers usually get a scoop ahead of time. So Don Graham called, left a message saying, please call me. So I called him. And he asked how I was doing, and I was feeling guilty about <laughs> playing hooky. So I don't know, I made up some story about what I was doing. And after about five minutes, he said, well, David, I just called you to tell you you won the Pulitzer <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, it was it was pretty special. Now, I know there's not a real award or a trophy. Is there a certificate? Like, what do you get to signify that you won it? Oh, there is a real award. It's both... Uh, it's a little, actually, um, there are three things. Okay. It's a, um, what do you call it? A paperweight with a, an etched engraving of Joseph Pulitzer, your name, what you want it for, et cetera. Okay. Then there is a certificate, and then there's a little bit of money. So there's three things. Where is it displayed in your house? Well, um, the certificate is here. Okay. Um, in the background here, um, the paperweight is actually, we have a summer house in Madison. That's where that is. Yeah, and, and, uh, and don't worry about the money. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Detroit born, Wisconsin raised. I know you're a Packers guy. Who are your other teams? Brewers, Packers, Bucks, somewhat the Pirates because of Clemente. Um, a little bit of the San Francisco Giants. I can't explain why I just... <laughs> always thought they looked cool in their uniforms. And I loved the Maze McCovey, Jim Ray Hart uh, era, uh, Felipe Alou, when they had all the Alou's. Um So I sort of go back to that. You know, I think for almost everybody, the golden era of sports is their childhood into their teens. And, mm -hmm. and those are the teams that I still... I, I mean, I was a Milwaukee Braves fan, but they moved. So yeah. them forever, you know? <laughs> Um, journalist, 45 plus years, author for more than 25 years. I'm assuming because your father's, you know, history, background, it was always a career in writing for you, right? That was it for you? Well, see, I, Mike, I was the dumb one in the family. So, yeah, I followed my dad into journalism. My brother and two sisters, well, my brother and my older sister were both scholars, PhDs, professors. My younger sister was a classical pianist. 
And I was sort of the insane <laughs> wretch act with my dad going into writing. But yeah, I loved it from an early age. And I was really lucky because it was one thing that I both loved to do and was good at. You know, so when that those two things combine, you're blessed. Do you remember your first piece of writing that got any press? Well, my first writing um, was two things. Uh, for the paper in Madison, Wisconsin, I wrote, I covered high school football and basketball on Friday nights. Okay. And also covered student protests at the University of Wisconsin. You know, sort of these two very divergent yeah. things that both sort of came back into my life later. And it got pressed. Like that was the first one you like, okay, I'm doing this all right. Yeah, I remember that I wrote a, um, a couple of things. One is my, you know, I, I really did feel that I was not as smart as my siblings. But when I was about 15 or so, even before my first story, I was going into the newspaper with my dad, who was a newspaper man. And he introduced me to someone and said, this is David, my youngest son. He's going to be the best writer of all of us. Wow. And I didn't know, you know, sometimes somebody can say something that that means more to you than you realize. And that was that moment. Um, but I, I, I understood from the moment I started writing for newspapers that I love to do it. Now, weren't you a radio guy also? Weren't you on the radio? And that really helped me. I, my first... My second job was uh, at WIBA Radio in Madison. And what was great about that, Mike, was that, you know, rather than rip and read the wires that would come in, I would rewrite them oh. um, and on, my, on my own. Um, and from that, I learned how to write with pace. In other words, write so that you can read it out loud. It's not necessarily the length of the sentence, but it's the rhythm of the sentence that's important. And learning that on the radio helped my writing for books and newspapers as well. I just got back from long, long, long flights a couple of days ago, and I binge-watched your podcast with you and your daughter, Ink in Our Blood. <laughs> How'd that come about? Did you enjoy the process? And are there new episodes coming? Because I binge-listened to, I think, like six episodes. You and Jane Levy, you doing like footsteps or it was awesome. What made you get into that? Have that start? And we do any uh, any other episodes? Uh, I got into it because of my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> and also at that time, I was working with a marketing guy who was marketing one of my books. So they came up with the idea together. Um, I enjoyed it. I, I don't, you know, I'm not necessarily a great podcast person, so... <laughs> I might do it again if I, when I have something to say. <laughs> I don't like blabbing for the sake of blabbing, but if I can impart, illuminate some part of history or sociology or impart my knowledge of writing or, you know, like in those cases, I interviewed Jane Levy and John mm -hmm. Holmstein and, and some other folks. I mean, that was fun. I might do it again. You're the author of 13 books. I've read five of them. I just ordered two cool. other ones after I started researching you. So we have a lot to talk about. So thank you for giving me the next four hours of your time, okay? So, <laughs> so, so, so David, traveling is one of my biggest passions. And with my line of work, I really appreciate and admire people who do deep dives into things. You're basically a detective. Uh, you leave no stone unturned. And you stressed in your podcast also, you have to go to the location, walk in the footsteps of your subject. Why is that so important to you? You know, sometimes it doesn't even show up literally in the book, but it infuses 
everything that I write about. So just take the classic example of moving to Green Bay for the winter to write my Lombardi book. <laughs> <laughs> First, I had to talk my wife into it, right? <laughs> but she was a trooper. And we got there, and two things happened right away. One was that after a week, Linda, my wife, said, David, I feel out of uniform. I got So she went to Kohl's and bought a green and gold sweatshirt, right? <laughs> because, I mean, that's it's a one-company town. Yeah. Then we, after a couple of weeks, we got terrible earaches adjusting to the Saskatchewan screechers and Alberta clippers and all the weather up there. And so we drove down into Green Bay to the emergency room and all of the doctor's doors had either little little uniforms on them, either the number four or number 92, you know, either Brett Favre or Reggie White. So... In every possible way, we got a feel for what a one-company town was like. I also interviewed people by being there that I never would have thought of otherwise. You know, a guy who was Vince Lombardi's newspaper boy, a guy who played the piano at a at a lounge where Marie Lombardi loved to sing, all of these sorts of people that wouldn't you wouldn't come across unless you were part of the fabric of the place. So that's one of the reasons I do it. I travel a lot with my wife, and I, I read that you travel a lot with your wife to your things. Does yeah. she ever get sick? Like, okay, David, know more about Clemente. I don't want to hear another story about Jim Thorpe. Does she ever get sick of your – because you, you come engrossed in these characters. <laughs> well, I don't know if she I'm sick of it, but she, she certainly um, becomes sick of me being obsessed. <laughs> so the, the story about that is one day – we were driving up Wisconsin Avenue in DC uh, toward Bethesda. And instead of turning left onto a street, I turned left into a fire station. So Linda from the passenger seat sort of knocks me in the head and says, David, what chapter are you on? <laughs> you know? And she was right. I was I was thinking about a chapter instead of about where I was going as a driver. And that happens too much. <laughs> I gotta ask you this about the biggest hurdles you face because I, we're going to fast forward a little bit to the Obama books, the Clinton sure. books. You're going to go there to interview people. And if they're really close with Clinton or Obama, I'll use those because they're so high profile. Yeah. If they're really tight with them, they may not want to give you information. But if they're not with them, like, oh, I want to be involved with them. Do you ever have to, like, you have to unearth and find the truth? Can that sometimes be frustrating? Um, it's not so much frustrating as important and difficult. Um, and there are ways to do it. I mean, I, you know, I've been a reporter for many, many decades, so I have some instincts about who's feeding me a line and who's telling the truth. And there are ways to triangulate it with documents um, and other interviews so that you're always trying to figure out what's the closest version of the truth that you can get to. Um, and actually, for both Clinton and Obama, one of the key frustrations for many reporters is that there are so many gatekeepers between that person. I mean, that's true in sports too, right? Mm -hmm. Now, unfortunately, between that person and and uh, the, the interviewer. But for both Obama and Clinton, my obsession was not with what they were doing as president, but what were the characteristics of their life that got them to that point? And so my, both of those books focus on their development. And in that case, the people in the White House don't really know. They weren't there. 
You know, it's the people in their background who I'm talking to. So there's nobody, there aren't as many gatekeepers with the people that I'm trying to deal with. To gain people's confidence and trust, you just go, hey, look at my line of work. I'm a fair reporter. I'm a fair author. I, I don't know if you have enemies, but is that how you kind of gain their trust? Well, my motto is no promises, no surprises. Um, okay. So, um, uh, you know, I mean, there are people that, that aren't going to trust me at first. Um, and that's fine. And I don't, I, I never try to manipulate anyone or feed them a line about something that's not going to happen or that I, you know, I like what they're doing if I don't. I mean, I try to be objective about that. Um, there's one important lesson that I try to teach to uh, younger uh, reporters. And it involved my book on Vietnam in the 60s. They marched into sunlight, mm -hmm. which I consider my best book. But anyway, um, there was a veteran, a soldier from the battle that I write about. It was a horrible battle. They walked into an ambush. 60 uh, members of the Black Lions Battalion were killed and 60 wounded out of 140 who went into the uh, into the forest that day. In any case, there was one key um, lieutenant who was the commander of a, of a company. And he didn't want to talk to me for about two years. And then finally enough other so veterans of that battle convinced him to talk to me that he agreed to meet me um, at a hotel lobby in Denver. He was staying up in the hills of Colorado then. I'm still haunted by that battle from decades earlier. And when, when he sat down, he said, David, I'll talk to you if you promise to be good to my boys. Because so many of his soldiers had been killed that day. Cool. And I said, um, Lieutenant Colonel Welch, I cannot make that promise. Wow. Because if I do, I'll, I could either be deceitful to you or to the truth. Um, if I find things that, you're, that the soldiers did that were wrong, I have to tell the truth about that. Um, so I just can't make that promise. Um, I, if I promise you that and find it, then I'm breaking a promise to you or to the truth. And he got up and said, no, that's not good enough. You have to be good to my boys. And I repeated it again. And the second time he heard what I was saying and sat down and agreed to talk and put his trust in me, I promised, I said, I can't promise to be good to your boys, but I can promise that I will search for the truth. I will do everything I can to find out what really happened. And I will not surprise you about it. I'll tell you what I'm finding. And that worked. And he trusted me. He, he eventually went to, back to Vietnam with me uh, to retrace the battle site. He gave me all of his letters. And just by being straightforward and honest about it, it made all the difference. Oof. That's intense. So a few weeks ago, I finished one of my favorite books, not just by you, one of my favorite books I've ever read, The Path Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe. Why Mr. Thorpe? Well, I consider uh, Thorpe the third book in the, my trilogy of sports books that transcend sports. Lombardi first, mm -hmm. uh, you know, not just a great winning football coach, but also a way to write about leadership and competition and success in American life. Um, Clemente, not just a beautiful ball player, but also that rare athlete who was truly heroic. You know, so many athletes are called heroes. Mm -hmm. Very really are. He was the way he died 
trying to deliver humanitarian aid to Nicaragua after an earthquake. And then Thorpe, um, who was arguably the greatest athlete this country has ever known. No one has done what he did before, you know, before or since that um, trifecta of being um, a, an Olympic decathlon and pentathlon gold medalist, a great All-American football player, the first great professional football player, the first president of what would become the National yeah. Football League, and a Major League Baseball player. <laughs> no one has done all that. But again, Mike, that's not why I wrote the book. I saw it as an opportunity to um, to use his life to illuminate American sociology and history as a Native American. And it's a combination of using, I love sports. Mm -hmm. I love the drama of sports. All three of those athletes have great drama to their lives and to their sports. But they also tell something larger, and that's what I'm looking for in all of my books. So that's what brought me to Jim Thorpe. It was wild because, like you said, I knew Jim Thorpe, Carlisle, gold medalist, football, baseball. I knew it all. He died in 1953. When I read it, I'm like, it kind of, I felt like very ignorant. I, I'm like a big sports guy. I try to know everything about him. I'm like, he died in 53. That blew my mind, number one. It really did. Hmm. Number two, and I want you to get into this, uh, the Carlisle uh, School, I always thought it was just a high school powerhouse football team. Uh, <laughs> that was the furthest thing from the truth, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, first of all, it was... It was neither a high school nor a college. It was somewhere in between. It was an industrial school. But its main purpose was to forcibly acculturate Native American peoples. That was its mission from the beginning in 1879 um, through the time when Jim Thorpe was there in the early 20th century. Um, so, and also, you know, it was definitely probably for the years of Thorpe's time there, the greatest college football team in the country. Mm -hmm. And and what's funny about that era is it wasn't LSU and Alabama and Oklahoma that were the great teams. It was Penn and West Point and Harvard and Yale, right? And, but but little Carlisle Indian Industrial School could beat them all. Um, so that was that was that school. And you know it had its it was complicated. On the one hand, many of the students who went through there um, rose to become lawyers and doctors and important activists in the Native American movement. On the other hand, the whole point of that school was to um, diminish or eliminate Native Americans, basically, turn them into white people. The motto was, kill the Indian, save the man. So it had both of those dual effects. I uh, right before you came on, I did a quick Google search on you, and obviously everything on the internet is true. But I, <laughs> but I actually clicked on your Facebook, and I saw that a box of those bad boys got delivered to you. Mine hasn't came to me yet, David. You haven't sent to me. When can we expect that book out in uh, online in stores and stuff? When can we purchase the paperback book of uh, the Jim Thorpe book? The pub date is June seventh, um, and uh, so you know sometimes you can get it on Amazon a few days before that. It should be in bookstores um, by that date. Well, Let me ask you this. I have a lot of authors on. Sports and authors are my two favorite guests. Um, you invest so much time, so much energy into a book. When you finish, you, you need to decompress. You know, you step away from the subject. Do you ever get worried by the time the paperback book comes out and the second push of media that you're kind of going to forget some of the stuff you invested yourself in? <laughs> sure. Not only that, sometimes I can't remember which book I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but 
you know, it tends to, st- I mean, because of the way I write with mm-hmm. a level of detail, I can't remember every, everything, but, but I've talked about the book so much that, you know, I, you know, I know the story pretty deeply. Do you become emotionally invested in a guy like Philip? Because it was heartbreaking how we're not going to play spoiler. He was the greatest athlete, loved and adored, and yet how he died and how, you know, he didn't have money at the end and how he was just trying to be an extra in Hollywood film. Do you become emotionally invested in these guys? I'm basically an empathetic person. So, yes, uh, unavoidably, <laughs> I become emotionally invested in almost everybody I write about. Slightly less so with politicians, mm-hmm. I would say. Just because they're politicians, but um, everybody else, I'm totally invested in. Like I said, I love the detective aspect of the way you write. Was it difficult? Uh, it's a lot easier for just say Roberto Clemente stuff or Lombardi when you're there. Jim Thorpe, Native Americans, obviously they're pushed to the you know the back. Was it difficult getting the records and doing a real deep dive into the research on him? It was pretty much the same. I mean, luckily because um, he was so involved in things that that dealt with the federal government, like the Indian Industrial School was mm-hmm. was run by the federal government. All of those records were at the National Archives. And even before I started researching it, they were digitized. So I could get everything from Carlisle online. Um, the uh, records of the founder of the, of the Carlisle School were at the Beinecke Library at Yale, I found those. One of the villains of the book, Avery Brundage, um, you know, the future president of the International Olympic Committee, who competed with Thorpe at the 1912 Olympics, unbelievably as a decathlete. I always thought of him as this fat cat cigar smoking, you know, potentate. Anyway, all of his papers are at the University of Illinois, where he went, so I was able to get those. Um, The Cumberland County Historical Society in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, had a rash of letters that Jim Thorpe had written. Um, so there were various archival ways to get at him. Um, you know, in every book I've done, I've had to find different ways to find the archival materials. The Thorpe book was different from all the others in one important respect. Everybody who was contemporary with Jim Thorpe was dead. Wow. Um, you know, even with Lombardi, um, I was able to interview a lot of his college roommates at Fordham who were in their 80s when I talked to them. Um, but with Thorpe, born in 1887, no way. So that was different. I'm glad you brought up Olympics because the first book I've ever read of yours was uh, Rome 1960, The Olympics That Changed the World, uh-huh. Look, which I love that book. Looking back now and doing research to podcast with you, when you think of Olympics that changed the world, I think immediately 72 Munich. That's like the one. Even like Mexico City, the Black Power Salute, um, the, the 80 boycott. What about 1960 drew you to that one? I'm glad you brought it up with that subtitle because I never liked that subtitle. Okay. <laughs> and, and for the paperback, it was changed to the Olympics that stirred the world. Okay. Um, rather than change because what those Olympics did, unlike – any other Olympics, was reveal the modern world coming into view. Um, It was the first doping scandal at an Olympics when a Danish cyclist died. Um, It was the first televised Olympics. It was the first Olympics where an African-American carried the American flag. It was the first Olympics where a um, sub-Saharan African won a gold medal, um, Abebe Bakila in the marathon. 
Um, it was an Olympics where the tensions of the Cold War were rampant, where East and West Germany competed as one team just before the Berlin Wall went up, even though the two sides hated each other. Um, so many different things going on that's, that, that sort of showed the modern world coming into view. And that's what I wanted to use those Olympics to focus on. Again, using the drama of sports, incredible athletes, you know, Cassius Clay, a.k.a. Muhammad Ali, Wilma Rudolph, Abedi Bakila, Rayford Johnson, just brilliant, brilliant athletes. Okay, now also, I'll... Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, what? I'm going to fanboy out now. Obviously, I'm not on the David on your team. Why not Cassius Clay or the big O, Oscar Robinson on the cover? Why Rayford Johnson? I always wanted to ask you that when I saw it. Because Rayford was the symbol of those Olympics. Oh. He was much bigger. Cassius Clay, uh, Muhammad Ali was... Um, he hadn't grown into what he became yet. It was his sort of coming out party. Um, Oscar Robinson and Jerry West, you know, what a, what a backcourt that was, right? <laughs> um, but the Olympics, the decathlon is sort of the symbol of the Olympics. And Rayford Johnson then was considered the greatest athlete in the world. And um, so and he was important to those Olympics in so many different ways. Uh, a beautiful human being, by the way. Um, that I want to honor him with a cover. I always want to ask you that. So now you are uh, politics and sports. That's what you're known for. You do you ever? I know they. Uh, you try to interwine them in books. Do you ever go back to back? Because I don't know the chronological order of your books. Do you ever do sports politics? Because or do you just get burnt out? Like okay, I just did so much politics. Let me step away and do a sports book to relax. Well, uh, it started with uh, Clinton, right? Mm -hmm. And then I was so burned out by Clinton, I went to Lombardi. So yeah. it was opposite arch archetype. Um, so, yeah, I, I tend to go back and forth. Um, you know, I don't really see too much difference in how I approach either of those books, um, those types of books. Some people say that sports is the toy department, but I consider a lot of sports stories as sociologically significant mm -hmm. as politics. And politics can be trivial. So, you know, I, I'm trying to do the same things in, in all of my books. Your second book, uh, Lombardi, of course, and you mentioned earlier you moved to Green Bay because you must be the smoothest dude in the world to convince your wife to move to Green Bay. But did you know Lombardi's a New York guy? Why wouldn't you just move to New York? <laughs> I did. Oh, did, where'd you live in New York? I lived on uh, the Upper East, the Upper West Side for two summers and spent my time traveling around to Sheepshead Bay <laughs> and to uh, Montclair and all the places of his existence. Uh, his brother, Joe, was still alive. He took me around. I met many of his uh, contemporaries. Um, I went to Fordham for several days and looked through all their scrapbooks and, and other materials. Uh, so, yeah, I, I did move to New York twice, too. Let me ask you, best and worst thing about living in Green Bay, best and worst thing about living in New York? Best thing about Green Bay was... Uh, <laughs> People were wonderful. They were very nice. Okay. Western nice. Um, worst thing about Green Bay was the weather. Man, I remember stepping out to go to a pizza place <laughs> in January, late January. It was like <laughs> minus 14 degrees, just like the ice ball. Mm -hmm. um, best thing about New York, it's thrilling. I, I mean, I love New York. I mean, just walking down, you know, we lived right off uh, Upper Broadway and we'd walk down and up and down you know, 
uh, into Riverside Park and just everything about it was exhilarating. Uh, the worst part about it was it was also exhausting. And the, you know, the, the incessant beat of it is both exhilarating and exhausting, I would say. Your Lombardi book was a play. Um, any other of your books ever become movies or shows or have been optioned or is anything, any of that in the works? So my line, Mike, is that all of my books are in various stages of not being made into movies. <laughs> <laughs> um, almost every one of them has been optioned. Uh, Clementi is now sort of on a front burner again. There's a screenplay being written. Okay. Um, it's It's been optioned many times, but it, maybe it's getting closer. Thorpe, uh, you know, I mean, we have a writer's strike, but that looks like that's a possibility now. It's been optioned, and there's a great uh, Native American uh, director and writer who's involved in it, if it happens. Um, so at least those two. Uh, my book on Vietnam was never uh, turned into a movie, although Tom Hanks bought it once. But it became, someone was so inspired by it that they turned it into a modern dance, which was kind of cool. Okay. Uh, so that, and, and then the Lombardi play, that's about it. Two inside baseball writer questions. When you finish a book, you're hitting send, you're, do you have a ritual? Like, okay, I'm finished with the book, final draft, send. Any ritual you do? Yeah. We go to an Italian restaurant if we're in DC to Piccolo's restaurant. Okay. And, um, if we're in Madison, there's a, this is funny, but there's a little, um, African, uh, store around the corner from our summer house that sells a lot of trinkets and stuff from Africa. And for some reason, for the first book, I bought a, a wooden giraffe and we called it Kirkus because of the Kirkus reviews. Okay. And so now I, 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 we always buy a giraffe. Ah. <laughs> I've had a bunch of New York uh, Times bestselling authors on, and I always say the next book, after they become bestselling authors, it's going to get a lot of press. It's basically most likely going to jump the charts you're going to get a lot of eyes on it. Is that a good thing or do you get more nervous? Like, oh, crap, I know everyone knows that I'm coming out with a book. Boom, it's going to be everywhere. Nerve-wracking or exciting or like happy about it? Well, the truth is that that the publisher treats every book differently. Um, so uh, I'm happy if the publisher buys into the book totally. <laughs> um, and like every other author in the world, think that it's never being marketed right or whatever. But I have no reason to complain, and I don't complain. So yeah, um, I mean, you're, one is always nervous about reviews um, because reviews are important, but they're also the subjective opinion about from one person that affects thousands of people. You know, um, you know, a review in the New York Times, especially. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm nervous about that more than anything else. Last time you read a review, do you go on Goodreads? Do you go on Amazon? Do you read a review for your book? I don't go on Goodreads. Um, I tend to go on Amazon for the first week and then okay. I stop. <laughs> um, and I can't lie. I mean, I, I you know every newspaper or magazine review I read definitely. I I can't ignore them. Um, and you know I've been lucky most of my career. They've been really really great, but. I could get 30 great reviews and one bad one, and that's the one I remember, you know, like any human being, right? <laughs> uh, one of the books I haven't read of yours was your first one, the Clinton book. What I actually, I just bought it, so I want to read it. Um, 
doing a book on that before you're, you know, who you are and everybody knows who you are. Did he provide you an interview for that book or did he give you an interview or was he aware of your book afterwards? Because that book really blew up. So afterwards, does he reach out to you? <laughs> so um, he, I interviewed him. I covered him for the Washington Post in the 1992 election. I interviewed him many times during that year. Then as soon as he won, I decided to do the biography. From then on, he wouldn't talk to me um, because he knew that, well, who knows why? I mean, I, he couldn't dismiss me as a right-wing uh, conspirator. Mm -hmm. He knew that I would dig into his past and there was stuff there he didn't want to see. So um, I never got an interview with him while I was doing the book. Wow. But several interviews were set up. And then at the last minute, his press secretary called and said, he just doesn't feel comfortable talking to you. Then the book came out. And from his, you know, I knew everybody around him. And they'd say, you know, David, uh, Clinton's reading your book to us, the parts he likes. And then he doesn't read the parts he doesn't like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or he'll say to one of his aides, uh, you know, why do you come off so good in this book? You know, <laughs> that kind of thing. So then... Here's a great story. Um, can I swear on your podcast? Of course. Okay. So two years later, um, he's giving a speech at the American Society of Newspaper Editors in Washington, which the White House, the, the president traditionally does when that convention is held in D.C. And I was on the dais because I had won an award from them that year. And Clinton comes in. We haven't talked in two years. He actually was on crutches because he'd recently fallen off Greg Norman's stairs. Do you remember that episode? Yeah. yeah. So he comes in. Uh, he gives a speech. And then he has to walk by me to go to work the rope line, which, of course, he wants to do. So he comes by and he says, I don't know what to say. I haven't talked to him for a few years. I'm tongue-tied. He says, hi, David. Nice tie. Congratulations on your award. Nice okay. tie. So I, my dad and my wife are in the audience, and I whisper out to them, he said, nice tie. So Clinton goes around. You know, he won't talk to me, but he's talking to my dad for a few minutes about who knows what. And my dad's first words to him were, nice tie, Mr. President. So a couple months later, I'm in New York. Uh, having dinner at Rao's restaurant. Whoa, name dropping there. That's fancy. Yeah, with uh, and well, more name dropping with a bunch of reporters and George Stephanopoulos, who was one of Clinton's aides. And George says, you know, David, did, George and I are talking about Clinton and how interesting and exhausting and infuriating and intelligent, all the different qualities he had. And uh, Stephanopoulos said, did he ever talk to you for your book? Or after your book came out, and I said, not really. You know, the only thing he ever said to me was nice tie. And Stephanopoulos said, well, you know what nice tie means in Clinton's private lexicon? And I said, no, what's it mean? He said, well, it means fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, well, I'm glad my father unwittingly responded in kind. <laughs> that is incredible. What a great story that is. Oh yeah, it's quite a story. Nice time. And so after that, a lot of <laughs> a lot of reporters in DC came up to me and said, Oh, that's why Clinton told me I had a nice time. <laughs> oh, that's actually pretty awesome.
<laughs> How did you uncover Obama's girlfriend in New York? That is, can you please get into that? Because I've only read snippets that you, yeah. you're the one who uncovered her. And I, oh, I actually forgot where she was living, but you found, how did you find her? Yeah, that was, that was detective work at its finest, I would say. I mean, so in his memoir, Dreams from My Father, he talks about how he was in love once in New York with a girl who was white. Mm -hmm. And that's all anybody knew. And every reporter, every political reporter in America was trying to find out who is this, you yeah. know? So um, for about a year, I was getting nowhere on it. We had no names, no nothing. And then one of his friends from that era said he found an envelope from 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 some from Obama that had the name Genevieve on the back of the envelope. So I had a first name. I thought, okay, and I knew from from his memoir the way he described their time together, that they would go up to this golden pond type of place uh, north of New York, probably in rich western Connecticut, right? Okay. Um, so with uh, a friend of mine who's a research the Washington Post, for months we put in every variation of Genevieve <laughs> and that part of Connecticut into the newspapers. And uh, finally, we found a wedding announcement of a woman named Genevieve who had um, married a guy. Um, her she was her um, she had lived in Australia. Um, her father had worked in Indonesia. Everything sort of clicked bells of Obama's life. Um, so then I went through all the the uh, court records up there and found that she'd been divorced and remarried, and her last name was now Ahern. Um, it had been Genevieve Cook, but now it's Genevieve Ahern, and that she'd returned to Australia. So then we went through every possible Genevieve Ahern in Australia. <laughs> I had just come back from Indonesia. I had jet lag because of the time difference. Mm -hmm. I was up in the middle of the night, realized that it was a good time to call somebody in Australia, called the number, said who I was. And what I was doing, and she said, how did you ever find me? Um, no, that was her response? Yeah. And, wow. then, and then she started talking. Um, and we talked through the night. I remember going back to bed at like 4.30 in the morning, and my wife was sort of groggy, saying, that must have been a gold mine, which it was. Wow. And then I kept in touch with her, and she started one of the one of the interesting things, Mike, is that she's kind of new agey. Okay. And for some reason, new agey women like me because I'm kind of softer. Yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. Aggressive in the, in a in a in a apparent obnoxious way. <laughs> so uh, she started reading about me, and she said, "Dear David, I read an interview you gave where you talked about how important contemporaneous documents are." Yes, I kept a diary. <laughs> Oh my, that's the holy grail. So she sent me your diary, which was, yeah, quite awesome. Um, and that's how it happened. Now, I have to ask you one other follow-up question now. You found it, you uncovered it. Obviously, you're not telling everybody, hey, I'm the guy, because then everybody would go look for it. Whenever you meet Obama, do you tell him, by the way, I know? Like, do you let him know, like, a little rib, like, I know who she is? Well, 
Obama was the final interview for the book. Okay. And I let him know ahead of time that I'd found her, figuring that that he would that would make him curious and want to talk more, which it did. So yes, he he, he knew that. Uh, you know, he actually at one point it was the interview was scheduled for fifty minutes and. At that point, he said, David, I have to go to the Situation Room for something, but I'll be back. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't an important thing, but he did, and he came <laughs> back, and we kept talking. And, um, uh, you know, yeah, he wanted to know everything that I knew. I mean, that's the key to, especially with politicians, well, it's different for different types of people, but for everybody, as you know, as a detective, the more you know, the more people will tell you the less they can sort of forget. Or, mm-hmm. So uh, it's important to, to to go into an interview like that, knowing as much as you can um, and letting them know it. One last question about politics. Can you ever write a book on a politician you don't like? Like, can you do like, listen, you do deep dives, you do the definitive biographies. Could you ever do a book about Trump or about a politician you truly don't like? Could you ever invest that much time in it? No. Okay. I can invest time in someone who is complicated. Mm-hmm. And Clinton certainly was complicated. Um, there were chapters of that book where I admired him for his intelligence and for his compassion with certain, with African-Americans and mm-hmm. other things. And there were chapters where I disliked him intensely for his manipulation. And, um, but he was complicated. And I like that. I enjoy that. Um, but someone who I find irredeemably uninteresting and bad, I couldn't I couldn't devote four years of my life to. Just don't want to. I've had you for 45 minutes already. Are you ready to finish up with some quick hit questions? Sure. <laughs> you come back to New York. You and I are at a bar in New York City. I'm going to ask you to name drop here, David. Who's the coolest person in your phone that if you texted them, they would text you back? Well, in New York, it would be probably uh, – Gay Talese. All right. <laughs> you know who that is? Uh, yeah, I see. You're a good name drop, Dave. That's, okay. You win there. Okay. Okay. How about this one? One or, sport- Tom, wait. or Tommy Kale, who's a good friend of mine who was the director of Hamilton. How's okay. So you're impressive even now because now you can even get tickets to Hamilton. Sorry. So you, yes, you're a good bar guest. I don't know if you know this, but Tom Kale directed the Lombardi play before Hamilton. Oh, really? So I knew him before. Yes. That's actually really cool. That's a, Those are two good answers. Yeah. How about you're a big sports guy. One sporting event in history you wish you could have witnessed live? Well, there are many. I actually write about one that no one else in the world would ever say, but it's in my Thorpe book, which is a day in Milwaukee when the Milwaukee Badgers played the Oorang Indians in the NFL, and the star of one team was Jim Thorpe, and the star of the other team was Paul Robeson. I thought that would be pretty cool. Now, you know what? That's a wild one. I get everyone I ask that one. That, that, that's a unique no one. No one would ever say that. I mean, in terms of other – I mean, the Brewers never won the World Series. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, I would have loved to have seen Clemente win the nineteen, you know, the 1971 World Series. I wasn't there. That's a good answer. And, you're, you know, you have the ties to him, so that's a, I'll give you that answer. How about last show you binged watch or your favorite series to always watch? Last show I binge watched was The Diplomat. Okay. Um, which, you know, is not real life, but it's, I love Carrie Russell and uh, Rufus Sewell. They're both great actors. Mm-hmm. So that was a blast. 
Um, what was the other part of the question? Your favorite TV series of all time. You know, MASH or Mary Tyler Moore. <laughs> How about this? You have, uh, behind me, I have memorabilia. If only people come on the show, they always send me something. So we'll talk about at that at the end, okay? Very cool. How about this? Who's the, uh, what's the coolest piece of memorabilia that you own? Whether it be from one of your books or someone gave you something. What's the coolest piece of memorabilia? Not the Pulitzer Prize, because that is the coolest. But what's the coolest piece you own? The coolest piece I ever got, I gave to my son. And it was, I went to interview Muhammad Ali. Oh. Um, after he had Parkinson's, he was living in Berrien Springs, Michigan. Um, but he was still active. And I spent a whole day interviewing him for a story I wrote for the Washington Post. And I never asked for autographs, but I couldn't resist. So I asked him, I get, I had these little index cards. Okay. And I gave him an index card and said, could you please sign this for my son? And instead of signing it, he took it and drew a, a boxing ring and stick figures um, and little dots of people around the boxing ring and put Frazier on one and Ali on the other. It's the coolest thing in the world. And so my son has it framed. I think that's probably it. I'm going to tell you why I'm blown away by that. So I'm not a memorabilia guy at all. I'll never buy memorabilia. The only thing I've ever bought, I have two seats from Yankee Stadium right next to me over here. <laughs> but anyone who comes on, I'm like, hey, send me a jersey, or whatever, you know, a book. But personalize it with something stupid. Like the jerseys behind me, like um, Dan Issel's like, hey, Mike, sorry, the Knicks will never win a champion. You know, everything yeah. has to be funny. Like I make some people like, – I'm doing a series at Mariano Rivera and he wrote like to Michael, we would have won more titles if you were on the team, like stupid stuff. So to have that from Ali, which is so unique, that, that blows my, that's one of the coolest answers I've ever heard in my life. Uh, that is very, very cool. Well, two other quick ones. When you're writing a book, do you read other books or are you just so invested in your book that you can't even decompress and read a book? Well, I certainly have to read a lot of books about the subject. Mm -hmm. about. So for each book, I have a whole shelf of, books about, you know, Detroit, if I'm writing about Detroit or Pittsburgh or uh, Native American history, whatever the book is. Um, other than that, I have a harder time. I can maybe decompress by reading like Daniel Silva or, you know, something like that, you know, that takes me to, you know, a, a novel, a thriller or something like that. That's about it. What book are you reading right now? Are you reading anything right now? Yeah, um, I actually just finished the last Daniel Silva book, uh, <laughs> a Portrait of an Unknown Woman. Um, and I just read a book that hasn't come out yet that I blurbed that you would love, I think. It's called um, Kingdom Quarterback. And it's about Kansas City and Patrick Mahomes. It sort of weaves together that the city, which is fascinating, and the rise of Patrick Mahomes. I just wrote down. I will get it when it comes out. And the last one, David, it's 2.30 in the morning. You had a late night. What's one meal you're going to at 2.30 in the morning? What do you want to eat? At 2.30 in the morning? Probably pizza. Okay. There <laughs> <laughs> I mean, are other meals that I like more, but that one sort of goes there anytime, right? <laughs> hey, I'm going to be honest with you. This was an absolute pleasure and honor. I make a little holy grail list sometimes of like, oh, guys, I wish I had on. And for years, I've always wanted to have you on. So to come on after the thought book, and not that I forgot you, but I remember when I read Rome 1960, I'm like, oh, this is before I even did the podcast. I'm like, oh, I wish I would just talk to that dude. And after a few of your books, and after thought, I'm like, I have to go crazy to get him on. 
You have been one of my holy grail guests I want to have on. This was so much fun. And uh, June 7th, the book is back out in paperback. It was awesome, David. This was a blast that I couldn't even tell you how much fun I had, man. Me too. Thank you, Mike. You're a great interviewer.